Welcome back to The Lighthouse Project. This podcast is presented to you by Children of Scientology, a collaborative effort which aims to be informative about the issues which have affected the youngest members of Scientology. Today, as we continue our focus on the trial of Danny Masterson, we are so pleased to welcome to our podcast Scientology expert witness Claire Headley. Claire Headley was born and raised in Scientology. She entered the Cadet Org Child Indoctrination Camp after her mother joined the Sea Org in England. Claire then went on to join the Sea Org herself at the age of 16. And in 1996, she was placed at RTC, which is the Religious Technology Center, the body appointed to preserve the technology and ensure that standard practices are followed. Following several promotions up through the ranks, Claire eventually became one of the top executives in Scientology. Since leaving Scientology, Claire has been vocal, speaking about the abuses that she witnessed and experienced. Claire is a mother, a businesswoman, an advocate, and a legendary champion in our community. And to say that we love the sharing of your stories, that would be a huge understatement. And particularly to me about your being raised in Scientology and the Sea Org, and then that incredible TED Talk type speech that you prepared through yours and Mark's YouTube channel, Blown for Good. If anyone's not there already, I can't imagine that that's possible, but go check that out. You're so incredibly adept at your interviews and you put so much consideration into your guests and the topics that you discuss. It's just really, really clear that this work is so deeply important to you. And we were beyond thrilled to learn that you would be taking the stand in this trial. I couldn't have ever imagined that we would be here right now. And I'm curious, did you ever imagine you were going to be an expert? No, I, can't, I cannot say I did at all. And thank you, by the way. Yes, the, the YouTube endeavor has been quite the adventure. <laughs> of course, Mark started it out and I was just like, hey, why does he get to have all the fun? <laughs> and the incredible part about YouTube is, as you all know, the Aftermath show was incredible and spread the word to so many, but it was just a fraction, a small fraction of all of our stories that made it onto the show. So having a format where people can interact and understand and we can keep shining a very bright light on the abusive practices of Scientology is absolutely a passion for me, for sure. But yeah, no, I definitely never imagined that I would be asked, let alone then actually testify as an expert witness. It was a very unique experience. And actually, I was first approached in September of 2022. So prior to the first trial, in the first trial, the judge excluded any mention of Scientology. During the course of the first trial, or maybe at the outset of the second trial, the defense opted to change their strategy, whereas now they were approaching this from questioning whether these events ever even took place. And the fact of the matter is, is that there are extensive reports of which only a fraction were included in the case that indicated that absolutely these events took place and were in fact reported immediately to Scientology as is law for a Scientologist. And so that change in strategy opened the door to having testimony to explain the language of Scientology, which is what I was asked to do. Somebody somewhere is really, really, really regretting. I was just thinking that. Heading in that direction. Yeah. I mean, and all of us were celebrating on the sidelines like, what? Scientology. <laughs> it's to come into. I mean, it was just remarkable. Just remarkable. 
Yeah. I don't even have words for how that felt. Yeah. That this veil I, was going to be slid back a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's never, it's never easy to do this work that we're all doing of explaining and exposing and speaking our truth. But the fact is it has to be done. And if not me, then who? If not you, then who? You know, is it okay that these crimes get covered up by Scientology? Absolutely not. Is there a language that, that a jury would absolutely have to understand to be able to know the facts of the case? Absolutely. So it was never a question for me of, ooh, do I want to do this? It was never an option. It was just, I'll do my duty. And that's just honestly how I feel about it. I know other people may feel differently. I certainly don't judge anyone that chooses not to speak up. I haven't walked in their shoes. I've only walked in my shoes. And that's that. So all I can judge is myself. And my favorite thing from, as you know, Mark does museums. And there was this one speech that B.B. King gave about Ray Charles, where he said, Ray would always say at the end of the day, when you lay your head down on the pillow, the person you have to be at peace with is yourself. And that really struck a chord with me because I was like, yeah, this is my truth and I need to do what's right. And I need to know that I've set an example for my children, that they're not going to be afraid of this bullying beast of an organization, no matter what they do. And obviously, I take all the necessary precautions. <laughs> so it's just, it's important work. I was paying attention to the previous trial, and it was very painful because these women were continuing to be gagged and they were continuing to be silenced as a victim through the experiences that they went through and how Scientology said what they could and couldn't say and, and took things out of their mouths and really restricted and controlled the whole experience and manipulated how they even looked at what had happened to them. And then for them to be in a position where they finally get the opportunity to give their testimony and then they can't even say certain words. And it was so, I mean, triggering, I guess, is the word, but it was just very upsetting. And I really felt for them. So to see it then come to the second trial and for them to be able to speak more freely about things, because it's as if, you know, in the first one, it was like they were having to describe something with a blindfold on. Like, tell me what it looks like and tell me what's happening, but wear a blindfold. So for them to be able to actually say what happened and then to be able to have your assistance there with explaining the terms and the reporting and the involvement of Scientology, how they have their own justice system and that sort of thing was really, really helpful. Yes. At the end of the day, these women that had that tenacity, bravery, courage to go through this awful testimony twice, they are the heroes of this story is the bottom line that what they've suffered and what they've done and persisted through is just mind-blowing. What's the opposite of gaslighting? Validating. <laughs> no, I was just the translator that explained but the that, language of Scientology. But that, but that, to Miriam's point, is the opposite of what was being done to them, where their hands are tied behind their back and they're mm -hmm. supposed to tread water or explain something and they can't use, like, we're going to take all these tools away from you. you yeah. Just like Scientology did. You can't say this. You can't feel this. You can't, this doesn't exist. And then the courts were doing the same thing because the courts were bound by whatever happened in that first trial, which is yeah. unfortunate. But yeah, and I had a little bit of that experience too, just mm. because obviously my testimony was the big bone of contention 
with the defense. Like they, to the very last minute, were fighting, trying to not have me testify. And a lot of that was because all it would take is one little slip up to open the door to my experiences. Because realize my testimony had nothing to do with my experiences. I was specifically instructed I could not use the word escape, for example. (laughs) Right before I walked in, I had to be like, okay, I have to fit within these parameters to comply with the directions I've been given to do my best job for these victims and survivors. It's very interesting to see what takes place in the justice system where we have to pretend that this is a bona fide religion. There's so much pretense going on, and I totally understand in your role what was required of you for that trial and for that, that case. They were really requiring you to, to restrict you in order so that we can all play pretend. I think one day that will change, hopefully. Yeah. The religious status really is so protective in so many ways, but we're all going to just go around and play make-believe so that we can follow a process that we're trying to do the right thing with. And yeah. it's it's wild, isn't it? It's just wild. Yeah, it is. I mean, I could speak for 10 hours about even just the policies and procedures and things I was testifying to. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it was just very narrow, very specific. And again, having to walk it back and make it so that anybody with no prior knowledge of Scientology could simply understand the terms, crystal clear, without any of the complications, I think it's important and a huge piece of the puzzle to understand that the language of Scientology completely isolates you and makes it that you can't talk to anybody other than a Scientologist. So really, the language itself even drives you back in because nobody else can understand you. And so that was the task I was faced with was you know, let me assume that these 12 people on the jury know absolutely nothing. And so I can't overwhelm them. I can't get into the weeds. It just has to be bare bones. This is how it works. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. That's the very thing that is so difficult about translating the experience to the real world And I think that's partially why there's a huge drag with law enforcement and that sort of thing, because they have so much to understand before they understand that it's a crime that took place. It's purposeful, obviously, and we're really ensnared in this language. But I thought you were really effective in cutting through on the terminology and being really precise and concise. And one of the terms that I had not heard before was civilian in reference to people that were not in the Sea Org. And I thought that was a cool way without going into an over-explanation about what is the Sea Org mean, what is this? And also it's not using a derogatory term like WOG, which I know that there was some pushback with by the defense. So I thought you did a brilliant job. It was fantastic. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because that was very intentional. In the 18 years since I escaped from Scientology, I started speaking out in 2008. And the term public Scientologist repeatedly trips people up Mm. who don't understand anything about Scientology. They're like, what does that mean? And it finally struck me. I was like, they're right. It doesn't mean anything. 
I mean, yeah. you know, obviously it means something to a Scientologist, but not to anybody in the real world. Like there's nothing, there's no comparative term. So that's where I was like, civilian Scientologist more explains because the C organization, as we all know, does have complete authority over civilian yes. Scientologists. They are senior too. They are the boss. They are the police. They are the justice system. So giving the concept and understanding that a civilian Scientologist is under the control and directions and they're required to follow orders, it was an important distinction. And again, public Scientologist does not communicate to anybody other than a Scientologist. And also it provides that connotation of it being this militaristic naval type of organization, which it really is. And people often don't see that part of it because they might have some preconceived ideas of what's in the media and the celebrities. But by just using that one word, you can really contrast with like, okay, so if they're civilians, then who are the other people that are running the show? And it does lend the idea, which is completely factual, that this is a naval type, militaristic, very efficient, very regimented, very practiced in what they're doing and governed by policies. But it's a structure. It's not just a come here and feel good type of organization. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and nor is it like, oh, let's go to church every Sunday. <laughs> Not it's right. you can't you just can't compare. It's apples and oranges. It's completely different because people have an idea of what it is, but Scientology is very, very different. You know, maybe there are other organizations similar to Scientology that I haven't personally experienced. Certainly no church I've ever walked into is remotely comparable. Not even they're they're just not. They're worlds apart. So Claire, when you gave your testimony, you didn't have any detailed knowledge of this case, so you couldn't answer directly to the specifics of it, but rather you spoke in terms of general facts and knowledge. Since that time, have you learned more about the Jane Doe's experiences in terms of the Scientology policies and practices which were applied to them? So it was very intentional on my part to not follow any of the facts. I don't know any of them personally. And even now, I didn't follow it in, in great length because who knows what, what else is coming up. But certainly, I know of the terms that were in their reports and some of the reports that they did file immediately after these crimes were committed. And so that was always my focus. I know how Scientology deals with covering up crimes. And in fact, Mark and I have now been going through 5,000 OSA documents that include other similar crimes against minors, no less. So the work continues. Wow, it's incredible. Interestingly, you don't need to know specifics about the victims because the policies will always direct how it'll be handled. Always. I think people probably, that's one of the biggest misconceptions is, oh, just this or, oh, this person. But no, it's all by design. Yeah, it's all absolutely. systemic. It's all a pattern. Mm -hmm. So many of us have experienced the exact same thing, the exact same handlings, quote unquote. And all that really changes are the details and the names. Well, That's and right. how empowering for us, like Claire, you knew this because you were at a senior level. Like I had no idea as a child right. that was being handled with these things. I thought it was just me. Mm -hmm. I was the only one. And I went and hit under a rock. 
And then to come back decades later and very carefully whisper things to people that were willing to have these conversations to discover this was all the same shit, different day. Yeah. When people, my unanimous experience has been when people get together and compare notes, the therapeutic value in that is you can't even name the importance of it because we were all having the same thoughts. We were all having the same experiences. You know, I had an experience when I was seven where I was accused of having knowledge that a 40-year-old man was going to commit foul play on my friend because I didn't go with her. So I was blamed for that. Like, well, you didn't go, so you must have known. You know, I'm like, what in the world's going on? Hasn't anyone heard of stranger danger? But it's all the smoke and mirrors and everything coming back on you as you're to blame. You pulled it in, all of that. It's really, really damaging to someone who is a victim of a crime. It destroys their voice and shuts them in and leaves no outlet for justice or recovery and addressing the trauma. All of that, it's just really, really destructive. Well, because you often eventually believe that about yourself. You take it into your core. And that's so destructive. It's bad enough for someone to tell you these things, but when you actually believe it, and then that's your new identity, and you go off that way for the rest of your life, it's really harmful. So you're right. Coming back and being able to compare notes is really deadly, I think, for Scientology, because now we can see through all this subterfuge, you know? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, the crazy thing is Amy Scobie and I were talking last night about the 5,000 osa documents we were going through and the craziest part is that the documents we're seeing is before any of us had spoken out the only (laughs) thing we were doing was talking to each other (laughs) wow (laughs) if that doesn't say it all i don't know what does (laughs) that was one of the pieces for me when i started waking up and thinking critically thinking for myself i remember asking another scientologist at the time how it didn't make sense that Scientology didn't want you to see all the in theta and black PR on them. Because in Scientology, in policies at least, LRH talks about looking at all the sides. What's true is what's true for you. The multiple viewpoint system. Yes, multiple viewpoints, upnosis. You have to have all of the details, but not with Scientology. You <laughs> see some kind of in theta YouTube video. Oh no, you have to go to ethics because you watch the whole thing. Yeah, that didn't make sense to me. And I started connecting the dots. Yep, absolutely. The second you start asking questions, the house of cards collapses very quickly because you're right. You can't use their logic because it's not. It's not logic. No, exactly. (laughs) And it's not unanimous. What's good for the goose isn't good for the gander or whatever way that saying goes. Right. Yeah. They would make us watch videos of psych wards, the destructive evil of psychiatry. And yet we can't watch someone who used to work with us, who left (laughs) and is speaking out like, what in the world's going on? Yeah. (laughs) And because that sort of information is very powerful, we were talking about earlier that about a second generation person who had been a child in Scientology and had left and probably hadn't had much to do with anybody for a while, but then was like, oh, I want to see if there's one person who knows me. That recognition of it really happened. It wasn't just in my head. I'm not crazy. Um, yeah. It's really validating. And Victoria used that word earlier, that it's validating. 
And of course, it's by design, right? But then from a legal perspective, being kept in the dark and we weren't educated, we didn't have access to outside knowledge or information. We really had no idea what was going on. If we had experienced a crime against us, well, Scientology is advised by multi-million dollar lawyers. We didn't have access to any kind of advice. It was just, it's your fault. And that's a whole nother psychological sort of tunnel that they would put us down through. But just from a legal perspective, we were completely kept in the dark. One of the things that they understood is that you can simply move someone outside of a jurisdiction and it's going to become a thousand times harder to get any momentum on a case. Yeah. But as long as if that person stays within that jurisdiction, then it's easy for police to go after them, to charge them. Once you move them outside, it becomes extremely difficult. You have state to state and then you have moving out of the country. They're going to be the least likely to be prosecuted. Right. Um, and also then time. They also knew that it was just a matter of time. We had statutes of limitations, which those thankfully a lot of them have been lifted now. And so we will see more of these cases come forward now. But they knew that they just had to buy themselves some time. The thing is with child survivors is that they need to get to a place where they're safe enough, where they have enough protection around them before they're in a position where they can begin to address and unravel. And so you'll often see people come out 10, 20, 30, 40, even 50 years later. You will not begin to address a situation until you feel safe, until you're outside of that harm, because up until then, you're just trying to survive and you're trying to get away from that harm. Yeah. And to your point, the very first layer of that destruction in Scientology is you cannot call the police. You are not allowed to call the police, let alone be in a safe spot. You don't even have any resources for help other than those who are enabling the criminal. Mm -hmm. I would say, too, there's policy, but there's also the psychological influence where, at least speaking for myself as a child victim that was experiencing abuse, I was genuinely concerned in the moment that if I were to press charges, I was worried for my abuser not getting Scientology. If I were to pursue this legal action, which my auditor told me not to, so I already had the policy, okay, I'm not supposed to do this. I cannot call the authorities because policy tells me or the tech tells me not to. But also, what if they're right? What if I'm keeping him from getting Scientology? Scientology is always above the law and will save a person's soul, literally. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's another layer. There are multiple layers of it. Yeah, so unpacking all of that, the very first step, and the only first step, is to get out of Scientology. The rest you can unpack from there if you've done that, but not if you're still in. Absolutely not. Mechanisms built in are manifold. (laughs) Well, And and it's done on purpose. Yes, of course. And for Sea Org kids... Or kids that were raised in Scientology closely in orgs or whatever, you actually don't know that you have rights. You don't know that there are laws that are supposed to protect you. And so you wouldn't even consider going to the police. That's right. That's so problematic. We haven't even gotten to the point of, oh, it's against policy for me to do it. Like, I don't even know that I can because I don't know that the law has been violated. I don't know that there are child protective laws. And also, I think that the police are SPs. So yep. yeah. they've turned your point. tools and resources against you. As I'm sure that's normal with cults, but it takes a, a long point. time to come through that and care yeah. enough to learn. I think I left at 19 
is when I kind of stepped off and went, oh, I'm going to go see if the world kills me, you know. Yeah. But I didn't go, let me research this. No, I just went, how am I going to feed myself? How am I going to be accepted, be accepted by these people that will think I'm crazy if they know the truth about me? So I have to go figure out a sure story, sorry, a lie, a false persona. <laughs> So that I can blend in out here and get a job and make a fake resume because I didn't go to school. And I have no qualifications for anything. And if they knew who I really was, they wouldn't give me a job. They wouldn't let me live with them. They wouldn't be my friend. It's survival mode, really. You know, yeah. not how do I find out the laws around child stuff and what are the statutes and how do I report it? Like that's like so not on your radar. Yes. No, absolutely. Yeah. So it's until you reach a point of safety. And when you're in survival mode, you're not in a point of safety. You're trying to get there in regards to reporting to law enforcement. As long as you're a Scientologist, it's not safe to do that. So you really have to first transition to not be a Scientologist anymore, which we know can take many, many years. And there's a whole psychological unraveling and, you know, filling back these layers. And it's a huge process that you need to get through first. And then you can be like, oh, I can do this. Sometimes that might have to be said to you like, hey, do, would you like to write a police report? Because I know for me, I didn't even know that I could. Yeah. My rights, my own personal human rights had been eroded so much from such a young age that I didn't even recognize that for myself, even when I was coming out of Scientology. So there really is so much to understand about that whole process. A huge exception to that was Jane Doe 1. She reported it about a year after the incident. And I think that could have to do with some other things in her experience where she knew that, no, this is not right. And she had enough to point to and enough exposure of other things. And that's what is really important with getting some protective things around children in Scientology is that they need that access. Yeah. I may be mistaken on this, but I think Jane Doe 1 was already a mother at that point. It was. But even so, no matter when, you also have to understand, I mean, you covered it well, but getting out of Scientology is one thing. And at what cost is the other? At such great cost, like your friends, your family, if you have kids, your kids' friends, maybe even your kids' school. I know people who left Scientology and their kids were kicked out from the school they were attending. The brutality that is wagered on families when someone's trying to leave Scientology is absolutely pure evil. And I think that really did come into play for her. There is some mention of that. It might have even been in her letter, actually, but it's somewhere along the lines. But she does say that she didn't want it to be okay for her daughter Like she needed to do this for herself because she didn't want to make it okay. And that is very powerful and very compelling. And she went through so much because she had everyone around her basically just telling her to shut up. But she went through a process where they were trying to reframe it and don't call it this. What she went through, she just clawed her way through that. It's just really difficult to even imagine. Really quite a heroic story, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. Also, too, getting out of the Sea Org is like fighting a war. To be a Sea Org member and leave, you've already traveled miles, miles and miles and miles of insanity and abuse. And then that next layer of leaving Scientology, especially if it's something that you were formed around, 
Mm-hmm. And you don't know any different. And so you're going to give up everything you do now and jump off this cliff. Yep, totally. It is Oof. very much like jumping off a cliff. <laughs> you're jumping off by yourself, really, for the most part. Mm-hmm. I was lucky. I had Mark waiting for me at the bottom, so I just hoped I was going to survive the fall. (laughs) And so I think they fight that so hard. Like Miriam was sharing a story where she had a childhood relationship with a boy that seemed to really love her, and they immediately separated them. They immediately, not in tribulation, ordered them. You can't have loyalty to anyone else because it's deadly to them that you feel safe and strong enough to step away. Yeah. Yeah, there were there were several instances of that in Jenna Miscavige Hill's book as well. That's right. Yeah, where she was just whisked yeah. away and never saw the person she was in love with again. Just boom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want any but, strong bonds formed ever. Mm-mm. And especially not between Int and Pat. You would have seen it just all the time. They'd just be like, nope, you're not marrying that person. And actually, even more recently, my mother, because she's still at full base, and she left this person who also worked there and they were planning to get married this is when we were still in touch and i was like oh what are your plans what do you want to do and then she was told that she couldn't marry him and i was like what she wouldn't talk much about it but she was like something about ethics he's in lower conditions but it wasn't okay we'll postpone the wedding it was you cannot marry this person ever yeah you know that i knew and worked with your mom i probably know that person too. (laughs) I'm sure you did. Yeah. Yeah. But either way, I know it's crazy. I mean, I was already married to Mark and I was being pressured to divorce him for in excess of five years, in many cases, directly by David Miscavige himself. Was that just because of the org that you guys belong to or because of his standing? It was both. It was because he was in Golden Era production. So it's on the same property. But yeah. the same division that you saw in Int and Pac Miriam was true mm-hmm. there. That in mid 2000, in a meeting, David Miscavige said to me, So, did you hear about the new policy I'm implementing? And Shelley had told me about it. So I said, Yes, sir. It's like, What is it? And I said, You can't be in Religious Technology Center and be married to someone not in Religious Technology Center. And of course, he knew very well that that applied to me. Like it was not some random question. It was a specific and exact point to me personally. Yeah. 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 And it was mind blowing to me because I want to say it's probably 2011-ish and my mom is in her 70s. If someone was going to tell me I couldn't marry somebody that I was in love with and I was 70, like I, yeah, I just. Right. What's the point in that? What yeah. is the point? Just let her have a little bit of a quality of life, just a fraction in that she can choose to marry the person she wants to marry. She's been in a dorm for, I'm going to say, 20 years. Right. At least and longer. And what is the point, Claire? Are they letting people get married? And if they're letting people get married, like when I was in the Sierra and I was a kid, but it would have been so you could have 2D birthing. Right. Or you could have... 2D interactions with someone. Right. Yeah, no, it became much more about control and leverage and not letting anyone build up bonds. So I escaped in January 2005. 
And already by then, there were couples who had been in relationships trying to get married for years. And as you know, that's not an easy task. Like, it's not like they're engaging in any kind of physical activity. The normal history of the C organization has been you get married as quick as possible so you don't end up on the rehabilitation project force for doing something out of wedlock, you know? But weddings started to be disapproved because everyone was in lower conditions and they were out ethics and whatever. There's definitely no logic. Was it um, before or after no children? Because I'm just saying, but like typically, oh, well, after. you would get married mm-hmm. so that you yes. could have children. And if you're going to say, I can't have children, then that kind of devalues getting married, right? Like why we're not going to produce offspring. Yeah, so no, this there... was well after no children were allowed well so just, after just yeah. as a distraction then we don't want you to have loyalties love distraction something that might be more powerful than your commitment to the sea org yeah exactly well, you can't insert too much logic into it because there's um, no logic. i think it's it's control leverage it's interesting yeah. as well because there was this policy leaving and leave so you weren't allowed to talk about if you wanted to leave the sea org i mean this is human trafficking that was my so, first RPF. Was for talking to someone, leaving leaves, 12, saying I didn't want to be in the Sierra again. Wow. And so then you got wow. punished. You got put on the rehabilitation project for us. It's the extreme punishment camp. Clearly, this is human trafficking. I'm wondering now, I've never looked at it this way, but couples do often leave because that's the opportunity. You're no longer in a dorm. So it's the one space that you have that's no longer a group environment because all of your other physical spaces in your everyday life is these group shared spaces. This is the one time now you have a room and it's just you and one other person. And what are you going to do? You might have some conversations between you two and that can make sense as to why they would want to prevent marriages. My aunt and uncle who were on the Apollo left later from flag. And my aunt has told me that their relationship, their marriage, made them strong enough to feel like they could leave. They felt secure enough together that they could venture outside into the world and survive, maybe, because you had each other. And I would imagine that Claire was probably similar for you guys. And I don't know if that was the same with Amy and Matt, but it's interesting. Yeah, ours was a little different just because... Mark, he left you and left me behind. (laughs) I was like, what the heck? (laughs) But to be fair, in retrospect, I don't know how I would have responded. I admit I may have turned him in. So I'm open enough to realize that that might have been my reaction because I had my whole family to lose. But on the flip side of that, I also knew, I mean, Mark and I had been married for 13 years. I'm like... I am not going to let anyone tell me he is a suppressive person. Nobody yeah. can tell me that. He's my husband. He's I've... a joker and degrader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it w- didn't take me long to realize that his sense of humor is the only reason I had survived so many years of hell and that I wasn't going to be able to live without him. So, you know, mm. the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I, love that. I love that. I love that. Yeah. I do really appreciate Amy and Matt's story and yours and Mark's story. This person that I was in a relationship with, he did try and kind of broach that subject with me in a really roundabout way because he knew that he would get punished if he brought it up. 
directly or I might react. So you didn't know how I was going to react to it. I just really shut it down. And it's, it's like, yeah, I had a lot of thoughts running through my head. And I was thinking, you know, neither of us have an education. We've both grown up in Scientology. He knew way more about the outside world than I did, him having been a Scientology child, whereas I was born and raised in the Sea Org. And I just knew nothing about the outside world. And I was so gripped by this fear that he was going to think that I was stupid as soon as we left. I knew that my deficit was so large in terms of my understanding that I wouldn't even allow the conversation to take place. You know, if he could go back in time and, you know, obviously I can't, things worked out the way that they worked out. And I think it would have been a little bit of a disaster if, if I did, because I know I was so overwhelmed by those feelings. I think it would have been so much for me to overcome. So I think I made the right decision there. But yeah, you can't change what happened, but it prevents yeah. a person from being able to leave. If they have their own fears in their own head and their own deficits that they think that they have. By the nature of the system that they're in, the system continues to work against them. If you could have someone break through that to like reach out their hand and say, no, we're in this together. Let's do it together. Then, yeah, it's really struck setting. So, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's fair to say we all have those what if type questions and those can be real butt kickers. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, because we can't change time. So at least from my perspective, and I have some massive ones that hurt very badly to this day. But, you know, at least for myself, I go, you know, I've walked this path. I own who I am. I will keep doing what I'm doing. I'm passionate to educate other people. And that is how I can change the course of where my life was previously. And that's at least working for me most days. Yeah. Brilliant. How you yeah. choose to be cause over effect. <laughs> well, I wouldn't, I'm not going to use those terms, Victoria. <laughs> it's not just those. I'm driving this car. I'm making my story. It's not about what I went through. It's about what mm -hmm. I do here and now, what we all do here and now, and picking up the pieces and moving forward. Yeah. That's right. And also you can't jump ahead. There's no shortcut on the process that needs to take place to slowly build up some personal confidence and some, and you know, that mental grappling that happens and the figuring out, you can't shortcut that. I knew that at 15, there was no way I should be leaving with this person. I didn't know on the outside world, the extent of our relationship, though I loved him so much, was walking around packed base holding hands or making out in the stairwell or the hallway outside my dorm late at night. And lots of conversations but there was so much that you weren't allowed to talk about there's all these massive questions like where would we live how do we start our lives like yeah and, and especially like is he gonna think I'm stupid and I am gonna be stupid when I get out I knew that I couldn't have done that when I was 15 so for me I didn't eventually leave until I was 17 and I also knew that I needed to do that on my own and yeah, very yeah. strongly, this is something that I'm going to have to figure out on my own. I need to get on my feet. And I hope that we would find each other after that. I think I'm trying to emphasize on the lack of resources and how that can really affect a person in keeping them there if they don't have a safe place to land on the outside and, and how all those things kind of come into play and an understanding about that, how to bring them up in terms of education and 
a lot of those sort of aspects. Yeah. Yes. The lack of resources, but also the fact that you actually have to get to these milestones on your own naturally. You can't be prompted, pushed, sped along. It doesn't work that way. You're ready for what you're ready for when you're ready for it. You know, yeah. And back to what you were saying earlier, Claire, I was going to say there's a lot of us really reluctant for reluctant advocates. I didn't want to speak out about Scientology. I had no interest in doing it. I was just trying to kind of figure it out, chat with my community. That was as brave as I wanted to be. And then at a certain point you go, oh, I have to do this. I actually have to do this because it's not changing on its own. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in my case, the decision was made for me by virtue of the fact that, first of all, they Scientology cut off my entire family, declared us suppressive, and then started some really, really intrusive bullying tactics. And the day that child services showed up at my door was the day that I was like, that's it. Game over. I do not agree to silence until that very moment when that gentleman showed up and he said, I'm really sorry to have to be here. My kids were two and two months old. And he said, I looked into it. It's obviously a bogus claim. I'm just being honest. You need to watch your back. And that's when I was like, okay, great. I've been silent up to this point. So now game on. I'm not, I do not agree to silence. I will never, ever. It was just the end of the road for me. I'm not going to sit here shivering in fear when you all were talking just over this course of this conversation. If I could go back to my just escaped self, I would say that fear you're feeling is not yours. Mm -hmm. So enjoy the adventure. Enjoy every moment of freedom and enjoy creating a life you are proud of. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. what I would tell myself, mm-hmm. looking back. I <laughs> love that so much. Yeah, that's beautiful. I've heard you talk about that moment, that pivot point where they backed you into a corner with Child Protective Services and you were like, fuck that fucking bullshit. Like, yeah. fuck you. Yeah. Game I had on. done, I had not spoken to anybody. Wow. <laughs> Mark was posting anonymously on the internet, which is what was riling them up. Mm. But personally, I hadn't. Mark is just speaking about our experiences. And it was kind of crazy that there were all these random, crazy stories on the internet. And the actual true stories were far worse. (laughs) So he was just saying, no, this is what happened. And this is what happened. And I respected him. I was fearful of it. But also, I'm like, he's my husband. I love him. If this is his path, then I will respect and honor that. But again, that moment changed the course of, you know, I was like, I'm not going to sit and cower while you threaten my family. Hell no. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know that before this. Yeah. That is so wild and horrifying and disgusting. I mean, and low. How low can you go? How yeah. low, how vicious. Yeah. I mean, and just yeah. another whole And, and of other... course, yeah, of course, the way child services works, I can't prove that. But I did give that business card to the FBI that I saved very intentionally. So yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. There's that. <laughs> well, each of us had our spark, right? We had the moment that they had gone too far where we just... Mm-hmm. 
not enough. And I love that we each reached them. They're probably totally different things. Mine was on the aircraft yeah. at 15, but I was just like, oh no, this is bullshit. And I'm not going to take it anymore. Like each one of us had those final moments. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Or many of them. I we feel had like many I've had of many, them, but one that was like at different stages. Final. Yeah. 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 It made us kind of explode and find our power and be willing to go, I'm giving all this up. I don't care what you say. Yeah. I'm go out there into the crazy walk world and see. I'm going to try yeah. and see what happens. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Taking that huge risk, because that moment that you're talking about, Christy, I remember that. And just thinking, okay, the outside world is evil. And, you know, they just would say that you're going to succumb out there and you're going to end up being a prostitute. <laughs> Either drug, a prostitute drug addict, or prostitute, a drug addict. Downward spirals. Like, yeah. 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 Or flipping burgers at Burger King was the same. <laughs> <Candy> <laughs> error, exactly. We've it's, all heard yeah. it. Yep. yep. Selling your body uh-huh. on Hollywood Boulevard. I was terrified of the outside world. It did not seem like a great place to go or a safe place to go. But something was compelling me and I was just like, I just need to keep moving forward now. This feeling in me that keeps telling me to get out, it's not gone away. And I've been feeling this feeling for two years. And in that process of two years, I was trying to leave. They bring me back, try to leave and bring back. I even blew. I even escaped, was brought back by LAPD. And and how crazy is that, by the way, that LAPD took a minor back? Yeah. Yeah, I was I was reading about that in After Catherine's book. After cussing her out and threatening her. Oh, this is another story, Claire. It happened twice. So what oh, this wow. is talking about was a very oh, intimidating okay. experience. Yeah. And I stayed overnight in a temporary foster home, which they called a soda home. And I've tried to Google that reference, but haven't found mm. it. They called it a soda home. And I said, what's that? They said it's temporary foster home. So they placed hmm. me there until someone could come and pick me up. It was the FBO, the flag banking officer at Asha. I think that's the title. Or is, is that the title? She's the one that sends the money up to Inch. Yeah. Yeah. There you Flag go. Banking so she officer. was the one that came and got me from the soda home. Not even a legal guardian. They're like, where's your mom, Miriam? And she's like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not allowed to know. And they're like, tell us the truth. Stop lying. I was just like, this is bullshit. And they had, and handcuffed me. They kept me handcuffed for, oh, I think gross. it was four hours, I want to say off the top of my head. And wow. Unbelievable. And, ha- and and how old were you? I was like around 16, but you have to understand I was a very young 16-year-old. You know, I'd been on the TTC, like well, I wasn't going out the doors a whole lot. I would have looked and sounded and been a very young teenager, but I didn't have the address because it was confidential. Of course, you weren't allowed to know. Of course you yeah, didn't. Exactly. My parents signed over guardianship of me when I was 16, and they had no idea where I worked. They signed wow. me over to someone that I'd never met. Not somebody that I knew. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. In mine, um, so it was after the blow. So yes, I did not have a legal guardian at that time. And then it was after that blow and I was brought back, of course, then they then had to arrange it. And I'd never met this woman. And I've told a couple of stories about it in our episode series. But yeah. Um, and also, I love that in Catherine's book too, she does make a comment about that. This looks like it's just a formality. Yeah. So in The Bad Cadet, there is a couple of stories that I'm involved in towards the end of the book. And it's that time of when we're all, well, the three of us that were in this particular room, we lived in a closet and we were preparing, you know, trying to leave. I end up staying and she raises the question of, 
why is Mary making that decision? Which that question I can answer in my book, but these are her words. This is her voice. This is her story and the way that she wanted to tell it. I was involved in the editing process in terms of structure and different things like that. But I was like, oh, do I want her to raise that question about me? But it made me think, how did I transition from there to there? And then I also, in writing about that in my own book, I found out a whole bunch of information, which is crazy. So I've actually put a bunch of things together and have had that confirmed. And anyway, so yeah. That's awesome. So this is the thing, guys. Tell your story, share your stories, talk to each other, support each other's stories. Every voice matters. Every single voice. And that concludes the first half of our chat with Claire Headley, Scientology expert witness in the trial of Danny Masterson. Stay tuned for more in our next episode. Thank you for sharing your stories, for listening and witnessing. It's so valuable that we connect with each other, and I know it empowers others to do the same. It is the one thing that Scientology has tried so hard to prevent for so long. Real connection, openness, and honesty between us. So it's a really powerful thing to be able to do now. If you enjoyed this podcast, the best way to support the work that we do is just to like, subscribe, and follow our channels. We are Children of Scientology on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you'd like to jump into the conversation, please leave us a voice message on Spotify. We might feature it in an upcoming episode. This is the Lighthouse Project Podcast, and we will see you again soon.